This episode of the Vermont Awana podcast is sponsored by Hedy Vermont and the Cannabis in the Capital event happening January 9th. That's Tuesday, January 9th in the Vermont State House. We are a Vermont-based business, and Hedy Vermont is working with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, one of our cannabis champions here in the state. There will be a full day with advocacy workshops. There will be a press conference. We're going to do an interactive demonstration with new grassroots and we are going to have a cannabis education fair from 4 to 7 that will be open to the public. Cannabis in the Capitol happening Tuesday, January 9th in Montpelier at the State House. More information on HeddyVermont.com. That's H-E-A-D-Y Vermont.com. Let's go. Put your grinders out and turn your radio up. This is the Vermont and Wanna Podcast. Whatever you were or were not celebrating, happy holidays to you. Hope that you had a great time with friends and family, whether you were doing the solstice, whether you were doing Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Bali, I think that was a little while ago, Uh, of course Christmas, and now we've got New Year's coming up. So very festive time of the year. I hope everybody had a good holiday. Uh, We've written in the past about cannabis in the holidays. It can be kind of hairy or it can be kind of awesome, depending on what you have going on. Me personally, I'm on a little bit of a tolerance break here, um, recording this right now from my 15-year-old cousin's bedroom, surrounded by Star Wars and Boston Red Sox memorabilia. Um, So it's been a great family time for uh, for yours truly. I want to give a big shout out to Monica Donovan, our co-founder at Hedy Vermont. We have been busting our ass for this past year, and we are so happy with what uh, what has been done and so happy with what is coming up. We have got some really, really exciting things happening in the state of Vermont, happening all around New England, and happening for us with Hedy Vermont specifically as a business. So we'll get into that a little bit, um, but I want to give you a little taste of what we have up today on this episode, because this is going to be a long episode. It's the holidays, people are traveling, you got some time in the car. And I have got a killer, killer interview. Uh, The main feature interview is going to be with a gentleman named Kamani Jefferson. We actually met online, and we've met in person a few times. Kamani is a really incredible guy. Um, I really love what he's doing as far as his activism in Massachusetts, his advocacy, not just about recreational cannabis and issues of economic justice and social justice, but also talking very frankly and very directly about racial justice and seeing what's happening with cannabis. Um, and he himself being a young black man from, uh, from Brooklyn originally, who's now living in Boston, uh, he's got some strong opinions on what's going on. And I just, I love his perspective because he's such a, a smart, like funny, sharp dude, uh, who's also very, very real. And that's what cannabis needs. So uh, I want to give you a little teaser before we get into that. Here's a little teaser of what Kamani and I talked about. I don't understand. This is New York City. Like, city in the world right and everyone loves cannabis like i've consumed with everybody it brings you can be so 
different in terms of culture, ethnicity, gender, and still come together and enjoy people because of marijuana, because of that culture. So I, I would always kind of be the guy starting trouble. I'm like, how do we make this more diverse? How do we get more all types of people that look like me? I, I used to say that. How do I get more people that look like me in the room? Kamani, man, very, uh, very, very unique cat. Hope to uh, spend some more time with him in real life in the very near future. But before we get into that full interview, let's take it around the Northeast with a little bit of a news update for you. It is December 26th when I'm recording it. Here is what's happening in the Northeast. Yeah! For the first time, it's going down history, baby! This news update is brought to you by Hedy Vermont's first ever CBD for Athletes and Weekend Warriors event happening Saturday, January 20th at Burke Mountain. We're calling this our Ski BD event because we are going to have Vermont-based cannabis growers, product makers, and athletes, experts talking about how they use CBD, legal hemp CBD products, treat aches, pains. I just went snowboarding the other day. I'm feeling it right now. We're going to talk about all the different ways that CBD can help you as an athlete enhance your performance, reduce soreness. Saturday, January 20th at Burke Mountain. That's right. We're going back to our favorite Burke Mountain up in the Northeast Kingdom. We've got lift tickets starting at $40 per day. Ski and stay package for $199. That's right. Two lift tickets and a hotel room for under $200. Can't beat that. Details are at HeddyVermont.com. That's Saturday, January 20th. Cannabis, CBD 101, Cannabis for Athletes and Weekend Warriors, Burke Mountain, January 20th, HeddyVermont.com. All right, let's take it around the Northeast, starting here in my home state of Vermont, where we are recording this today. The big national news uh, that's been blowing up my Google alerts has been an 80-year-old couple who were busted in Nebraska, driving apparently back to Vermont with 60 pounds of weed that they said going to be used for Christmas presents. This was a funny story. Uh, we blogged it. I used a nice picture of Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus uh, to kind of make the point of how ridiculous this is that you have 80-year-old people who are possibly going to go to jail. Um, but it also brought up, I think, some very real, very real questions about how uh, the criminal consequences for cannabis are applied to different people. Are these 80-year-olds who had 60 pounds worth of weed going to get treated the same way that a 20-year-old Hispanic kid would be treated? Were he or she busted in Nebraska? I don't know. It does bring up some interesting questions. So as much as it's like a funny, cute story, oh, Christmas is ruined, we're not going to get our weed, um, one, it shows how ridiculous this federal prohibition is that we've created these artificial economies where people will drive 60 pounds from California to Vermont. Uh, it also brings up some interesting questions about, again, sort of the application of criminality of cannabis, right? Uh, up in Vermont, you're relatively safe. You know, you get busted with weed. Um, we do have decriminalization, but people don't think about it too much. You know, if you're a person of color who's living in the Bronx um, in New York, you might have a very different consideration and calculation because the consequences are going to be different for you than they would be for these two 80-year-olds who got busted in Nebraska. So that was a big story in Vermont. Uh, I also want to point out how incredibly inaccurate the street value estimates were. I think they said $340,000 for 60 pounds. I talked to and quoted in my story um, a grower in California who's got an idea of what the market really is. 
you know, if you think about 1200 bucks a pound, which is probably still pretty expensive for that much weight, right? 60 pounds a lot, wholesale price. If it was 1200 bucks a pound, that would be $72,000, right? So I'm sure the cops were probably looking at like selling $20 grams on the street and using that math, but it's always important, media literacy, when you read the news and think about these things, a lot of people don't know what the street value is and they're gonna say, wow, $400,000 worth of weed, that's crazy. Again, very, very over-exaggerated. So that was a story that was pretty interesting. Everything else I've been reading about Vermont has been sort of about the inevitability. Uh, Vermont's going to do this in a few weeks. It's going to happen in early January. It's not inevitable. And this is just the very, very beginning. We are poised to pass a very conservative legalization-only bill. That's going to be one ounce, two plants. That's the basic. One ounce, two plants. It won't even go into effect until July. Right? So slow your roll. Um, don't disengage. We need to be even harder going at this because right now, Maine and Massachusetts are making real moves, and even New York. So let's zip around the region a little bit. You know, when you have these states that have <clears throat> robust medical programs, and I'm thinking about Maine right now, you know, you do have some infrastructure, you have caregivers, you have processors, you have dispensaries, you have all these things that have been serving the medical community. And when it's time to go to rec, there's always a point of friction, right? Because now everybody who's been operating in the gray area, you know, or everybody who's been serving the medical only market is going to have to figure out what the rules and regulations are going to be for adult use. And then they're either going to have to comply with those rules or get out of the business and right now or keep operating, you know, uh, underground in these sort of illicit markets. So that's what we see happening in Maine right now. Read some articles from the Portland Press Herald about crackdowns happening at processors. Uh, and this is something that we've seen happen in Canada. Canada is a pretty extreme case where they are trying to shut down everybody who is not federally compliant. They haven't even finished rolling it out, but they are busting people left and right. And the same thing is, you know, possibly going to happen in Maine. Uh, now, it seems like it's usually more political and more personal as far as who really gets screwed over uh, when people in the medical or in the gray area have to sort of come on board. But in Maine, we've been reading articles about processors getting cracked down upon and talking to folks over there. Um, you know, there really is a lot of people who are who are concerned and thinking, how am I going to do this? What, what am I going to have to do? You know, I've already got a $100,000 warehouse that I've built. Are the regulations going to force me to spend another $50,000 on a ventilation system, um, on a security system? You know, there's just with change um with the changes happening the people who do already exist and who are already operating out there in the medical uh or in the caregiver and sort of gray area at least in maine are definitely going to have some work to do so uh we'll see man i really like what i really like what maine's got going on it really is a libertarian you know small business empowered kind of state with everything that's happened a lot of gray area a lot of gray area happening over there but, but um, a lot of small businesses, a lot of people being successful, a lot of people doing it the right way, and a lot of really high quality, high quality things happening and in innovation. So that's a little bit of what's going on in Maine. But meanwhile, down in Massachusetts, you have got the Cannabis Control Commission (CCC). They have been having public meetings. They've been having committee meetings because in Massachusetts, they are ready to put the actual rules together. 
It's been quite a shit show to go from what voters actually passed, which was supposed to kick into effect January 1st. I don't think it's going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. What the voters passed by referendum, what lawmakers wanted to do, and where we're finally at now is that there's a Cannabis Control Commission. It is part of the state government. They have been meeting uh, themselves. They have formed subcommittees that include a lot of people from industry. I want to give a shout out to Michael LaTulip, uh, who is also, I believe, part of the Mass Recreational Consumers Council. Uh, he's somebody who's been very active, as has Kamani, Kamani Jefferson, our featured interview. So we've been following what's been going on in Mass because they're talking about the actual nitty-gritty details of regulation and thinking about, all right, are we going to have cafes? It looks like they are. Are we going to have spas? It looks like they are. Uh, what's the retail going to look like? I haven't really dug into this because I'm not in the business in Massachusetts, but the big notable things, I think, were, were the idea of cannabis cafes. Doing that right off the jump uh, is huge. Doing that on the East Coast is huge. The first place that, the first cannabis cafe that opens up in the Northeast is going to be an incredible, incredible business. And it's going to blow minds, open eyes, and really set a new precedent. Because the question of where can people consume legally, where can people consume safely, you know, where can you consume where you're also going to get some education? You're in a cannabis cafe, it's a controlled environment, you have a bud tender who can tell you about the different products, you know, he or she can make sure that you're not being overserved, you know, that you're not going to leave in an impaired state when you're a danger to yourself or others. So the cafes are going to be a game changer because it really is going to, uh, it really is going to put it out there. And it provides some really practical solutions, in fact, to some public safety questions that people have. You know, if you're a parent, you're worried about people having cannabis in the house and parents having cannabis in the house. Well, a cafe is someplace that a parent could go, hang out for a little while, um, consume, and then be able to go home in a safe way afterwards and not even bring cannabis home, right? So it's it, you see some comparisons with, with bars, obviously, um, and places that serve alcohol. And we all know that cannabis is nowhere near as dangerous as alcohol, nowhere near as harmful. But the idea of regulating it in a similar way where you can supervise the consumption, it makes sense. You know, these kind of the same reason that I think the drinking age should be lowered to 19. Uh, because you don't want it to all be underground with no supervision, with no real knowledge. You bring it out to a bar, to a public place, to a cafe. Uh, you're not only going to provide a safe, fun, you know, controlled space for people who want to consume, you're going to provide all of that for people who are not informed. And instead of just reading HeddyVermont.com or The Cannabis or their other favorite news site, they're going to get to see it in person. And I think that's really the, the enlightenment period for a lot of people and a lot of policymakers when they see it in person and say, wow, this isn't scary, this isn't dirty, this isn't criminal, uh, this is kind of normal. And the people who are in here are maybe not the same stereotype that I had in my mind. So Cannabis Cafes in Massachusetts is going to be fucking huge, 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 huge. Uh, we are paying attention. They are talking about event permits. I did sign a permission. I did sign a petition not too long ago. One thing this group in Massachusetts, the government, uh, the state agency is not doing well is looking at events. Uh, it looks like they're not going to allow event permits or that they are going to be cost prohibitive. 
for all the same reasons we just said that cafes are a good idea, you need to have cannabis events. You need to let small producers have a way to access the market. You know, you need to have people not being afraid to bring cannabis into a legal space and to have cannabis events that are higher quality, better run. So, you know, if you make it too expensive, if you make the permitting too difficult, if you don't have event permits for cannabis events, you're going to shut out a lot of great activity. You're going to disadvantage a lot of small producers who can't get access to the market um, and really, I think, corporatize and, and make this really difficult. So that's one thing in Massachusetts we're really paying attention to, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. I think I'm going to try to get Michael Latulip or somebody else on here and just talk specifically about how things are looking in Mass. So that's big news. And as I just read um, via Tom Angel at Marijuana Moment, who is a great resource. If you're not already, I encourage you to sign up for his newsletter. And I'll give him the free plug, marijuanamoment.net. Tom always does great reporting and is a huge federal source. He just reported that in 2018, in the early part of 2018, New York is going to convene a joint committee to talk about legalization, taxation, regulation. Because guess what? There's a lot of money out there in the cannabis industry. And these states do not want to miss out on it. And everybody who's in politics in these states also have friends who are in business. And guess what? They want to get a taste of this as well. So for a lot of reasons, not all of them are great. Um, We're going to see states really pick up the pace with regulation. And that's why it's incredibly important to be involved right now. Because as things are being shaped, these are going to set the rules. These are going to set the parameters, whether there are events, whether there are cafes, you know, whether it's uh, you having two plants at home or four plants at home or six or eight, you know, the rules are being made right now. And you can either add some ingredients to the sausage, you know, and get a good idea of how it's being made, or you can wait till it's cooked and then you're going to have to eat it whether you like the taste or not. That's a great extended analogy. Good job, Eli. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of exciting things happening in the Northeast you know, we are going to be spending, I personally am going to be spending a lot of time in the Vermont State House in the coming weeks. And as I mentioned previously, we have got our Cannabis in the Capital event on January 9th. So in the course of a month, we have had a CBD cannabis event in Burlington City Hall. Uh, we're doing one in the State Capitol building in Montpelier. We are going to have a cannabis education fair in the State House. How fucking cool is that? Uh, however this all turns out, I'm very proud that we're going to get the chance to do this. And then we're going to go to a ski area. So I'm pretty pumped about what January holds for us here in Vermont and really excited to get some friends from around the Northeast to come up and join because as we talked about, a lot of exciting stuff going on. beautiful funky soul that you hear in the background this is west end blend they are a new england based band on the come up big shout out to them check out their new album attitude by west end blend here's a little more taste of this track
That was West End Blend. The vocalist name is Erica T. Bryan. I think she's got such a beautiful voice. Kind of reminds me a little Erica Badu vibe, uh, at least with that track. But the album's called Attitude. You got some full, you, you got some funk, you got some soul. Go check them out live because they do a great live show, very upbeat. But in the meantime, speaking of badass ladies who I am very happy to talk about, I want to talk about Kathy Bloom, who is the newest member of the Hetty Vermont team. That's right. We are growing, folks. We are motherfucking job creators. We are making legal cannabis jobs in Vermont ourselves. Walking that walk. Kathy Bloom is somebody who we are very excited to welcome onto the team. Her energy, her intelligence, and her professional background could not be better suited for this. And she is awesome. So Kathy comes to us. She has worked with 350, 350.org, Climate Action Group. She has been a writer. She still is a writer. She now writes for Hedy Vermont. Uh, she's got a background in radio. She has done performance art, actress. Kathy is just so incredibly talented, smart, creative. We're really, really happy to have her on board. And the first piece she wrote for us was an original called Smoky Ladies. And I so love what she's saying and the vibe and that it's coming from her. And even better, not only is she an excellent writer, but she's got a background in radio. And so as an actress, as a vocalist, I said, Kathy, maybe you could record yourself reading what you've written and we can share that to the podcast. So what better introduction to our newest team member, Kathy Bloom, than to hear her in her own words with her own original piece, The Smoky Ladies of Cannabis. Enjoy. I love cannabis. Let's just start right there. I adore it. It's a source of fun, joy, pain relief, multifaceted healing, a sense of universal oneness, and deeply mind-blowing sexy good times. I also have a personal theory of cannabis spirituality, that just as Catholics have God, Father in Charge, Jesus, Son Who Gets Shit Done, and the Holy Ghost, which I guess is everyone's personal feeling of glory hallelujah, we of the green faith have an analogous holy trinity of the earth, Mama Gaia, who's really in charge, cannabis, daughter who gets shit done, and a holy ghost of fun, joy, pain relief, multifaceted healing, a sense of universal oneness, and deeply mind-blowing sexy good times. Which is all to say that as I review the roster of various pot strains being grown these days, I cannot help but note that many of them do not bear names reflecting any form or experience of the smoky ladies of love and delight. Instead, many of them are, to put it bluntly, names of dudeship and violence. Think about it. The Cannabis All-Star lineup includes monikers like Purple Gangsta, Sour Diesel, Green Crack, Granddaddy Purple, Trainwreck, Death Star, and Alaskan Thunderfuck, all clearly chosen by guys who've ripped a bee or three in their day. I get the sense that they're in a slow-moving contest to come up with names which most effectively reflect an experience of complete and total puddle-under-the-couch baked potato-ness. And honestly, with all the political nastiness and hashtag MeTooSeriousness going on right now, I'm a little reluctant to vent my feminist spleen over this particular issue, but I gotta say, it just feels wrong. These are lady herbs, beautiful luscious, strong, independent, extremely potent, and fully mature women. 
Sure, they can have you eating an entire can of cake frosting if you're not careful, but they can also bestow spiritual insight, ease suffering, help you achieve supergalactic orgasms, and in all truth, save your life. Is it too much to ask that they bear names which honor and reflect their immense capacities? Why not name a tall, sparkly sativa C.J. Craig after Alice and Jenny's whip-smart, fast-talking press secretary on the West Wing? How about calling a brilliant, bodacious, all-consuming indica Beyonce? Because, of course, she is brilliant, bodacious, and totally all-consuming. A hybrid plant with deeply mystical powers could be the namesake of anyone from a feisty cartoon princess like Moana to the prize-winning poet laureate of natural wonder Mary Oliver. Ruth Bader Ginsburg definitely gets her own strain. We don't have to get too precious about it, but as we're working to honor and promote the contributions of women in all areas of modern life, the smoky ladies should also get the recognition and names they deserve. That was awesome. So, so, so proud that Kathy Bloom is a part of our team and so love that piece. Really look forward to sharing more of hers in the future. Make sure you check that out online as well if you want to read The Smoky Ladies by Kathy Bloom. That is on HettyVermont.com. In the meantime, in between time, you're going to get yours. I'm going to get mine. That's a hip-hop lyric. Uh, I want to uh, I want to use that as a segment to introduce our featured interview Kamani Jefferson. Again, this is a long one, but you are not going to want to turn it off because Kamani's background is so interesting. Being a dude who came out of Brooklyn, knowing firsthand what the consequences of prohibition and of the criminality of cannabis are, being a being a woke, being a conscious uh, person of color who has family that have paid the price for for cannabis, and himself seeing that and learning from that, and kind of uh, kind of living living a lot of a couple different identities which still kind of revolve around cannabis and really talking about code switching talking about cultural context talking about going from brooklyn new york to binghamton new york for college landing in boston and how a hip-hop rap meetup eventually led him into the world of cannabis where he discovered that even in new york city it was still not representative of the larger society And as you heard in the first quote we used as a teaser, his kind of mission became, how do I get more people like me, more people who look like me, involved in this? How do we get more diversity in the cannabis scene so it's not all either rich white dudes or or crunchy guys with with neck beards and and crystal pennants? No offense, I love y'all too. So Kamani talks a little bit about kind of his awakening, and as you can hear, he's not shy. You know, um, he's a dude who jumps into things uh, and who clearly has got some got some stones and some strong opinions. So, you know, he jumped into it full speed ahead, took the lessons from the gray market, from the illicit market, took that hustling mentality and has now brought it all the way to advocacy and activism, where this dude is one of the leading voices in Massachusetts and therefore the Northeast for talking about social justice, racial justice, but also economic justice, and the fact that we need this system to be one that allows everybody to participate, so that the people who have done time for cannabis and everybody else, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, uh, that it's a meritocracy, and that cannabis as something that's so universal and so positive is something that can be shared by everybody. So really excited to uh, 
let you listen to Kamani's background, his story, how he got in Massachusetts. We recorded this about a month ago at this point now. Uh, so we didn't really talk about everything that's happened in Massachusetts since then. We'll have to do an update with him, but I really encourage you to check out the Massachusetts Recreational Consumers Council and especially the Cannabis Cultural Association. Without further ado, Kamani Jefferson. This interview is brought to you by Colin Garvey. Who is Colin Garvey? Colin Garvey is the man who is responsible for connecting your favorite cannabis companies with Hedy Vermont because he is our new sales and account manager. Colin, welcome to the team. All of you listening out there right now, you are somebody who cares deeply about the cannabis community and wants to know what's going on. There are companies, organizations, events. They want to get in touch with you, and we want to make the plug. We want to help connect you. So Colin Garvey is the man that you got to talk to to do that because your favorite cannabis company could be talked about right now. Instead, I'm talking about Colin's handsome ass and how we are going to work together and fill this podcast up with even more different companies, different events, different products, different organizations. Get in touch with Colin, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at HeddyVermont.com, because he will be in touch with you, and then we can all touch each other. But seriously, check out HeddyVermont.com. We would love to talk with you about your business, about your event, about your organization, and plug you in with the Vermont Tawana podcast. Custom reads, we'll take your reads. Get in touch with Colin. He's got the plug. In the meantime, enjoy our featured interview. I'm originally from New York City, um, from Brooklyn, and um, you know I've been in the cannabis scene, cannabis community, cannabis culture. Uh, it, it was always there um, since a young age. Like I, I remember, like being again. I kind of grew up on the whole um, like dare program in New York City. Like they would have like parades. Saying like drugs are bad, drugs are bad for the brain. Say no to drugs. Like uh, I kind of still remember that, like in parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, and and then my mom was, was a consumer, so I figured that out. And also, the, I was always into hip hop. Um, like just growing up in New York, hip hop is a big, huge part of my life, and that's how I met my partner now is through hip hop. Um, and that the cannabis culture is, is very much in hip hop as well. So I always kind of knew what it was. Um, I kind of dabbled it. I did start early at a young age, but I, I um, kind of cut it out a little bit as mm-hmm. I got closer to high school because I, I was, you know, I'm of color as a black man. I just knew the stigma. Um, and so I, I kind of, as I got more into high school, I did it more and more. And then in college, I really got into it because it just would help dealing with, you know, I, I went to upstate New York, Binghamton for college. And my <laughs> yeah, say, say no more. What, what was that? I was saying, I mean, I, I've only been to Binghamton a couple of times, but, you know, uh, say no more, man. Brooklyn to Binghamton is quite a transformation. Yeah, it was crazy. It was just like just coming from New York City. I was traveling. I, I moved around the city and, did, and then would commute to Long Island and then I, I for high school and then I went to Binghamton. So it was just like a crazy, I, was, I moved around a lot just doing all that. And, and cannabis definitely helped me just get through a lot of my earlier childhood moments. I was also an only child, too, so just dealing with a lot of crazy family problems and Binghamton um, I had to work like my last like most of college like I would say up to after freshman year I knew I needed a job to just even afford college my parents lost almost everything in the recession um, they were real estate people so wow. once that happened I, I just knew I had to hustle and um, you know I, that's how I got serious with cannabis is I, I was a consumer but I you know college kids need they need things so um, I, that's what really got me more involved in 
learning the learning aspect of it. And then I came back to New York City um, after Binghamton in 2012, and I jumped into the startup scene. I studied business, specifically like information systems, MIS, and I was obsessed with the tech scene, um, especially when Facebook like blew up and the whole social network movie came out. Um, I was, and my stepmom, after actually the, the recession, she became a recruiter because that's what she did before real estate and in the, the tech scene. So um, I started getting, I did, I was a salesman. I'm a natural salesman, I feel like, at this point in my life. And uh, that's a lot of jobs I also did was I was a telefunder at my school, was a tour guide at my school. Uh, my first job, job in New York City was like cold calling vacation homes to people who like signed up for something. A lot of cold calling, crazy jobs I've had in my life. Um, but I knew I wanted to transition that into the tech scene, and so I did, and I worked a bunch of different jobs for about like three, four years. I worked for TripAdvisor for close to two years. Um, and it was great. The money was great, but I just knew I wanted more. I, I, I had an entrepreneurship bug in me at a young age. My, my dad and my stepmom built a successful real estate business and did well, was able to uh, take me to a nice high school. And I just kind of knew I, I needed to work for myself. Um, so I worked another job after to TripAdvisor um, called Lofty. It's like eBay, but for art and um it was a cool situation as well, but it's just the same thing. Um, I just always felt like I could do better as an entrepreneur. I was never really impressed by my bosses. <laughs> and so, <laughs> well, I mean, there's, um, yeah, and there's, you know, there's, there's so much to, to kind of unpack, and I love it, man, because like your natural enthusiasm is is evident, you know, and is excellent, and all these different intersections where. You know, I'm thinking I want to kind of go back to, to sort of your upbringing because I think everybody's sort of orientation with cannabis. I'm, I just turned 30, right? And so I'm definitely, uh, you know, child of the 90s and, you know, hip hop culture. Yeah. Big, big influence on me. And, you know, I knew more about weed from listening to hip hop before I ever saw it, you know, and exactly. I, I definitely wasn't <laughs> yeah. ever, you know, but it's, it's different when you're somebody who's growing up in like, you know, my instance, yeah, I'm, I'm up here in Vermont, but you know, as a, as a white kid in a, you know, in a middle-class upbringing than being in Brooklyn where, you know, the cannabis scene is, you know, it seems like you have what's glamorized and you have kind of the hustling aspects, but there's also the stop and frisk, you know, and there's also kind right. of a very real concern that, you know, that you would have where you could get fucked with, you know, we have an explicit tag, by the way. Um, <laughs> so okay. can say that, um, <laughs> you know, where you can, where you can be, you can be harassed by, by police and by authorities for, for small amounts. Exactly. And, you know, is that something especially that you were kind of like conscious me, of? Because like, yeah. Yeah. Especially, um, I luckily, <laughs> I don't have a record. Um, I, I've at most gotten tickets for smoking or having butt on me, but, um, I guess I just knew the stigma and the stereotype, especially NYPD. In my opinion, NYPD are the worst police in the world. Um, I just, I, I've seen a lot of crazy things with NYPD. Um, and actually the whole Eric Garner thing really got me more involved as an activist when I can get right. later. But I had, I, NYPD just harassed black and brown men around New York City. I've seen it my whole life. So, um, <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things yeah, that, like, I definitely was you know. conscious of that, and that's why I kind of <laughs> played the whole, like, I thought school was good. I was like, I should go to school, so um, I don't get in trouble. You know, I, I had uncles and cousins who've done jail time for just possession or a bunch of other things. I just didn't want to get in that cycle. I didn't want to be a statistic. So I kind of played, I, I played it smart. I always, like, looked like, uh, work, 
glasses and boat shoes and fucking like, <laughs> <laughs> like khakis and like yeah people might call me a sellout or whatever but like the police are not gonna mess with me in this bag like you don't know what i got in this bag like <laughs> so, right right like the, yeah essentially i kind of knew what the stereotype was as a black man and dealing with nypd so when i did do things i probably shouldn't be doing i, I kind of was like oh well let me let me do like be who I am. I like you said, code switch. I've been code switching my whole life to go from like hip hop and ebonics to like doing well in school and being system, you know, systematic with the whole education system of America. Especially as I got close to my college years, it was just like you have to do this or you will not do good in this class and you will not go to a good college and you will not get a good job. Is what like we were kind of taught and cannabis kind of helped me escape all that BS. Um, and that's why I kind of stuck with it on and off since I was like, damn. Like, since then. it's been like 10 years of consuming <laughs> straight <laughs> yeah wow and you're still here um <laughs> yeah, <I'm> still <laughs> you know that's the um uh, but that's that's one of the interesting you know interesting things is you know one of the one of the best aspects i think of what i've been able to get out of you know cannabis community is meeting all these different interesting people you know like yourself who clearly you know you're very driven um and it's funny right. because some of these parallels with seeing the difference in the cultural disconnect with an issue like cannabis and how it is in Brooklyn and how it is in Binghamton. And meanwhile, right. the, the overall demand is static, right? Like it's still oh, everywhere, yeah, everywhere, yeah. everybody's still getting high, you know, and yeah. same thing, you know, kind of with, with taking that mindset and bring it to the entrepreneur scene and the tech scene, you know, and you kind of leaving off saying that, you know, you, you see who's out there, who's doing it. And you're like, man, I can, I can do that. I, I know this subject just as well. I can learn these few technical exactly. skills and, you know, instead of trying to find a way to work for someone else, I need to find a way to get myself paid to do what I really want to do and am passionate about, you know, and that's, that's one thing that I think is a millennial, you know, kind of mindset that we have technology enabling us to do these kinds of things, right? Where I can work remotely today, you know, and write on the internet uh, and talk to you from up here in Vermont. You know, but exactly. that's that's one thing I think that's like the, the theme of technology and cannabis and, and entrepreneurship, you know, and just empowerment, which is why it's it's an exciting time to be where we're at right now. For sure. You know, well, so that's why I want to like kind of fast forward. So you you're you're in the tech scene, you know, you get to mass. It's an easy, easy transition probably to get to the tech scene in Massachusetts, having spent a few years down in Boston and gone to school down there. Um is that how you kind of got more into, I mean, you mentioned that you met your current partner through, through hip hop. So like, how'd you transition this into actually. a professional cannabis, you know, <laughs> le legal, legal, legal on the board operation? <laughs> yes, legal on the board. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was doing tech and just trying to figure out what I was doing. I started making hip hop, like rap music. Um, at the end of college, just kind of deal with a lot of stuff. I've, just, I've gone through a lot. Um, in my life, and it hasn't been all bad, um, but at, like at that time I was graduating college, my, my dad and my stepmom divorced, my mother still is in the projects of East New York, Brooklyn, which is a terrible neighborhood. I have two little sisters, one in the upper, two in the Upper West Side, another one in East New York, so I just, I've seen the difference between rich and poor mm -hmm. in a place like New York City my whole life, and it's definitely had some things on me and that's why again i always came to cannabis and music um it would really help with my depression um and just dealing with school trying to stay alive like some days i wouldn't eat or i'd have to just figure out about a bunch of things so 
I got into hip hop just out of love because I loved hip hop, and um, I, I started making music, dropping nothing too crazy. I never blew up or anything, but it was just for the love of it. And I I, I met my partner through the, at this place called Rap School, and Rap School was essentially like a an unorganized hip hop incubator in Bedside, Brooklyn. Um, and it was the best time of my life. I every Sunday they would come have people come together, and there'd be like mics and drums and key, like keyboards and guitars and people would jam and we would be centered around rapping and hip hop. Um, and it was, it was great. And I was getting really serious about hip hop. I thought, okay, I could maybe combine tech and hip hop. Cause I've seen that. Um, Spotify is super interesting to me. I remember SoundCloud when it first popped off. Um, and I was so, I was like, this is great. There was Groove Shark too. I just thought, oh great. I can, I can take hip hop and tech and maybe do something. I still have a bunch of ideas um, around that those two concepts. Um, but I met my partner uh, Sonia, who was taking a year off from Harvard and living in in Bushwick in Brooklyn for about I think two. She took a full year off and she was working um, at Vice part time. And she was a singer and a rapper as well. And we, we fell in love. And um, I got her into cannabis. And it was the summer, so I started just visiting her, and I still live in Brooklyn from, like, end of 2014 going into 2015, and it was her, like, end of her junior year. She went back to, to Harvard. So I started visiting Massachusetts in 2015, been coming to Cambridge, and now officially a resident of Cambridge for a year, but been in and out of Cambridge for almost two years, or over two years, rather. Um, and I, I was like, oh, this is a great place. I, I, the innovation is definitely here. In, in Boston, I, I love the tech aspect of it, especially Harvard and MIT is crazy. Like I, I every time I go to MIT, I'm, I'm like, oh, this is I would love to go here. And I can, at least I can pretend, which is another thing I guess I've learned as an entrepreneur. You can just do certain things. I still look young enough to be a student, so there's certain benefits to that, which I miss from my college days. Um, but yeah, I, essentially, she had the idea. Of, Let's make edibles. She was looking at a bakery, uh, summer 2015. Um, and she wasn't making a lot of money. So she's like, what if we made edibles? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I was very skeptical of anything. I didn't know anything about this industry and edibles was just so different. Like people, I don't know. I, I, right. I had prior to that, I only did it a couple of times and I wasn't sure, but she convinced right. me. She sold me, which was great. Well, and people uh, got to realize, like, up until a few up until a few years ago, like edibles weren't that prevalent on the East Coast, unless it was exactly. like old growers and stuff. Like that's a that's been like a change in the last five years. Like a same thing. You like you wouldn't encounter that shit normally, you know, like you exactly. do now. And it's, yeah, it's, it's I've definitely seen it change. You're like the the edible culture on the East Coast, from New England to DC to to New York. And people are interested, like, people ask, like, oh, where can I get edibles like this, like that? Like, it's definitely on the come up. And she saw it first because she just loved baked goods in general. Um, and we made muffins and we brought it. So there was rap school and there was this other place we used to go to, and Racket Club. And it was kind of similar to rap school. Um, it was in Bushwick. And every Monday they would have people and, like, jam out and people could get high and things like that. Um and we brought muffins, these muffins we made, and just gave them out to people. Like, hey, like we just made these. We're just trying this out. We don't know what we're doing. And everyone loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, sweet muffins? Like, I was so blown away at the time. Um, and then she was just, she's just a dope baker. She makes, like, Nutella cookies. She's made, um, good God, like, lemon, uh, lemon gummies and macaroons. Like, she really prides herself on that. So, um, and I just kind of had the business aspect of, of salesmanship and overall, I, I saw how startups work and I was getting big into like how to run a successful startup. So we knew we can com- combine our efforts. Um, and then, yeah, for about like six months, I used to just, I was still working. I worked another six months at Lofty, that startup, but part time, I was, you know, starting to hustle with these edibles around New York City. Um, and th- but I always kind of knew in the back of my head, I'm like, I can't do this. I need to be legal. So I started just doing research um, and learning, like, how can how can I become legal? Like, what do you have to do to be in this industry? And ev- eventually it came down to two things. It was the policy side and the politics of it, and then um, the financing of it. Is that to that's that's like the major portions of the right. industry, and um, and I will say I will say to our own credit the uh, the information side as well, which is why right we're talking on our, yeah, our new media important. podcast from my apartment. Um, exactly. Which exactly. I I mean one like hearing part of the story, this sounds like kind of like love and basketball, but like the Vice magazine version <laughs> of it. Like like seriously, it's it's ridiculous that. You know, I mean, it's great brand authentication for Vice that you guys are really living this, um, because it's like oh, the man. most Brooklyn like Vice shit I've ever heard. You know, and it's 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 beautiful, man. Like I love yeah, it. Like, yeah. you know, it's like you should Brooklyn be talking about this on like Jesus and Marrow. You know, um, that's all. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, so one, I think a movie could come one day. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I think a good movie could come out of this one day. So we'll see. But oh, that's um, hilarious. Yeah, eventually. Um, I started the Cannabis Culture Association because I just wanted to learn. You like, you said the information is probably the most important part. Um, I wanted to know more about this industry, and there would be meetups in New York City around cannabis. I went to the Cannabis Film Festival, uh, which was done by High and Y. I don't know if you know Mike D. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I did. I did okay. get a chance to meet him uh, at the CWCB Expo, and uh, oh, great. Yeah, hoping hoping to do some stuff with him, man. You're like the third other really good connector who has mentioned him. So clearly, they're doing something right out there. Yeah, he was one of the first meetup dudes, uh, cannabis meetups in 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 New York City. Um, I would go there. I would go to the Cannabis Hemp Association, um, and I think there was one more. But I would always be a little annoyed because I'm like, well, there's only a bunch of white dudes here, or white people in general, and. I don't understand. This is New York City. Like, this is the most diverse city in the world. Right. And everyone loves cannabis. Like, I'm consumed with everybody. It brings, you can be so different in terms of culture, ethnicity, gender, and still come together and enjoy people because of marijuana, because of that culture. So I, I would always kind of be the guy starting trouble. I'm like, how do we make this more diverse? How do we get more all? types of people that look like me. I, I used to say that. How do I get more people that look like me in the room? And I'm trying to get a, like, really not good answer from everyone, even from my disease. I love them to death. Um, and I, uh, I met uh, Nelson Guerrero, my co-founder, one of the co-founders of the Cannabis Culture Association at, what was it, the, uh, God, 
NCIA, they were having like their quarterly caucus in New York. And I, was, I went. Um, and I, we made a joke to each other. Where I'm like, yeah, you know, we're like the only like non-white people here. <laughs> like, and we like really laughed about it. And then I was like, oh, you should come to this high and Y thing or CHA thing that's happening next week. He's like, oh yeah, sweet. Thanks, man. I'll be there. And he came and I asked that question and then he texted me and he was like, no, let's just do our own thing. Like, why are we asking these people why, why this thing doesn't exist? Um, and some Kristen, who is a co-founder, um, who was hosting the Cannabis and Hemp Association event in Midtown, overheard, and she's Korean American, um, and and she, she kind of overheard that conversation, um, and was interested, and then we hooked up with our buddy Jake through CHA, he used to take pictures of the Cannabis and Hemp Association meetups, and we all just kept in touch. And we started talking to him about it, and we were all down. And then Sonia, of course, my partner, um, we were just going back. She was still at Harvard, but would come to New York just to know what was going on. And we formed Cannabis Culture Association, specifically advocating for more inclusion, more diversity. We would have meetups in um, Kristen's law office in Midtown, where she actually used to do the Cannabis and Health Association. Um, we did about, like, six different meetups in a row, Um going into, like, yeah, the summer of 2015, or was it, or last year, excuse me, 2016, this was, so this was 2016 at this point, um, after the whole, just trying to learn more, and thinking I want to start an edible business, saying, hey, I don't see any more, of the, it was really a gen, genuine thing of, like, I'm a little, um, I'm confused, because, like, we know, I smoke with pe- all types of people, I just was so confused by it, to, like, oh, well, how do we address this, and, no one had the right answer, so the entrepreneur me said, okay, well, I'll just do it. <laughs> and then um, formed CCA, started doing events around inclusion, diversity, and, and overall, not just people of color, but minorities, vets, women, all types of people we were saying should be in these conversations because this affects everybody. This, this Cannabis doesn't discriminate. Well, and um, I, I, love, so, I love that's the two, you know, a few of the things to pull out of that. Like you said, it is really one of those things that the culture in the community, you go to a cannabis event and it's like, you got camo hats, you got dreadlocks, um, you know, it really doesn't know any cultural bounds. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. However, at the same time, like I think the cannabis industry does a much better job of including, including women, you know, statistically like the gender balance is much better. However, you know, like you said, the racial balance, the racial imbalance just on proportion is still way off. And then not only that, when you think about sort of the, uh, the inverse of that, you know, and who feels the consequences of cannabis more than, more than others, as far as the criminality, like, you know, the people feeling the most impact and and the most risk should be the ones to benefit the most, you know, from like a, an equation standpoint. Right. But uh, that's really not how, not how it works. And, you know, I want to know like kind of through your experiences with the CCA, you know, did you feel like, is there, was there more resentment, you know, in the community of people saying like, I mean, even yourself saying, well, we'd rather, we want to do our own thing, you know, and like forming that and making that communal or like, you know, what was the reception like from the more conventional, you know, sort of traditional, if you can say that in the cannabis space, uh, kind of, kind of actors. like. Yeah, people were open to it. Um, but I just, I just, overall, we still have this problem today. Um, like I was on a panel at the, there was a CWCBE in Boston last weekend, 
and I was on a panel on this, and it was just, it was just kind of mostly people of color attending this panel. There was about three white people, and Sony has been asking like, how do we get more white people to care about this? Like, they gotta care too. <laughs> right, you know? right. Um, and so they, they think it's a good idea. They're like, oh, that's great that you're doing this, but I don't think it's like not a priority to some people. It's very unfortunate uh, because it's not just a people of color thing. That there's been disproportional arrests. You know, people are sitting in jail while we're talking about getting rich or right. making a business out of Well, and I think about it, The um, you know, what I, what I see in the veterans community more is like you see just – the collaboration, you know, and that there's empowerment in that. And it's that, you know, when you start having events for yourselves, you have groups, you know, for yourselves, you're, you're networking together, you know, in whatever environment you're controlling, you know, that it naturally is going to lead to people starting organizations together, starting businesses together, you know, and ultimately like, that's what I, that's what I see happening, at least in the veterans community. You know, it seems like that's the, I mean, cash rules everything around me <laughs> I, yeah. you know like that's the, ultimately how everybody gets on the on the same playing field is when you know there's that economic um you know sort of opportunity for everybody and that's where it seems like exactly. you know there's a good opportunity and you're talking about i mean the cwcb expo the one in new york you know that's an industry conference you know and so yeah. you're you're yeah. doing you're practicing what you're preaching by being there and talking with everybody you know, and, and kind of planting these seeds. Um, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing with the rec, the rec council as mm-hmm. well, is that, you know, it's systemic mm-hmm. and you say, all right, we can't have more, you know, more diverse cannabis businesses and more access to cannabis economic opportunity until there's more uh, political opportunity, you know, and it's Absolutely. kind of looking at it from a systems approach where, all right, if we want to make this happen, we got to change the laws first. And... It kind of seems like that's that's where you're at now with the Rec Consumer Council, and you know at least as much as yeah, I can yeah, know yeah. from Facebook is that that's you know sort of what what you're working on, and I want to talk a little bit about that because you know that entrepreneurship, that business, that that doesn't happen unless advocacy is more important for entrepreneurs than anybody else, right? Yes, absolutely. It's <laughs> part of your business plan. It has to be. I don't understand people who aren't advocates or aren't educated on the law, what's going on politically in the place they want to set up a business in it. The, the, the policy sets the market, which sets the regs, which determines how your business can implement itself. So, And if you're somebody, um, you've, yeah, you've seen it like in, you've seen it in the startup scene, like if you're somebody who wants to get in the biz, the first thing you got to do is call someone like you or someone like me, you know, or someone like us who's a lawyer you know, and say, hey, is my business going to be compliant? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like, you can go and that, read these bills yourself. For sure. Right. Yeah. That's literally what happened. It was like, well, I'm clearly un- uncompliant, um, and I don't want to get arrested because I know I can get arrested really easily. So I was like, what do I got to do to be compliant? And that's kind of what led me into networking with people who are more knowledgeable than me and going to events to just learn information on these things. Um, and, and yeah, that kind of is what transitioned from CCA. I had to step down for CCA. CCA is actually suing Jeff Sessions um, among uh, the federal, overall the federal government um, on, the, on cannabis being a Schedule One drug with Marvin Washington, that ex-NFL player, um, and uh, a vet and uh, like an 11-year-old 
uh, patient from Colorado who had to flee from another state just to get medical cannabis. So I had to kind of step down from CCA because I knew I need to focus on MRCC. Um, and I also know that 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 lawsuit I, is, getting, is getting serious or it's going to get serious. It's one or the other at this point. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, things have, it's exciting what they're doing. Uh, well, I'm going to Atlanta tomorrow for the Drug Policy Alliance uh, conference, and we're all going to see each other there just to check in. The, there's also the Minority Cannabis Business Association. I'm um, very friendly with them, and we're all just going to check in about what we're trying to do. So, And down in Atlanta, we just talked about this last week on the yeah. podcast, down in Atlanta, they just decriminalized, right? And it seems like yeah, the that. time is now. And like, I know... I mean, I don't know shit about the South, and I've never been down there. And you know, I've been told Atlanta is a very different place from Georgia and the rest of the South. Yes. But it seems yes. like it's a, it seems like it's a huge moment, and like culturally, even in real time, you know, this weekend, um, you know, there's going to be some serious stuff happening down there at Drug Policy Alliance and MCBA. I've yeah. met I've met the, I met them a few years ago, I think, at NECAN. Um, so that's that's outstanding. I mean, in the lawsuit, you know, I think everybody should be suing Jeff Sessions. So. Um, oh yeah, everybody. <laughs> yeah, things are happening. Cory Booker also has a, you know, a federal bill trying to fully legalize on essential, you know, race, racial uh, reparation, uh, reparations, if you will, uh, and, and acknowledging this war on drugs has racial undertones towards well, it. So, so can I? Definitely. Can I ask you about that real quick? Because I want to. I, I want to know, yeah, like. Sure. You know, you mentioned the CWCB Expo, and they made news out in L.A. because they had invited Roger Stone. And oh, the Stone, yeah. <laughs> cannabis, you know, like, it makes it makes strange political bedfellows in, like, you know, everywhere. You have, like, people who are right-wing or people who are extreme libertarians, you know, who are allied with progressive liberals on this issue. Um, and I wonder, like, you know, how ethically you you know it's tough to balance sort of in the space and when you're a lobbyist you have to do it in person right which i know yeah. i know i know exactly how that is but kind of you know the ethics and morality beside behind like who do you invite you know to your table because they're down for the cause and they're going to do more good you know or who is uh, you know who's who's an opportunist purely and and who is you know maybe done too much that it's hard to walk back Right, and that's kind of what the argument was. Um, it essentially came down. Um, I was kind of indifferent um, to the Roger Stone situation because, yes, he's definitely said racist things and disgusting things, but he is in the political scene, and politics is very much that. It's disgusting. I, I really it makes me want to vomit all the time. But as a lobbyist, I'm, I I kind of knew that going into it, and I want to strategize at a, at a higher level. Um, I'm not saying I want to work with Roger Stone or condone anything he's doing. Um, this is politics, um, and I, I, I want to strategize to win. So I don't know if saying you can't speak to Roger Stone um, is a win, um, I, I, and, but then I didn't know what a win would be. So right. I, and that's kind of where I, I was at well, um, and I think with other members of MCBA and other people. So it, it was kind of hard because I'm like, well, I'm a lobbyist, and I actually watched Get Me Roger Stone last week, and I was, it was very intriguing. Again, he's disgusting. He's kind of a clown. He reminds me of the Joker. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> he he knows how to evoke an emotion from people, and that gets people to vote. Well, so, and I think you see, uh, you know, you see sort of politics for politics at its purest form right now at the national level. And right. like Roger Stone, like, kind of helped invent that. 
you know, and like right. I. I knew I thought that Donald Trump was going to was going to get elected when he showed up here to Burlington. This is in January when it was still like a joke. And he showed up in Burlington yeah. and he got like 24/7 news coverage. You know, he got like protests and counter protests, like all this crazy yeah. publicity and dude flew in on a helicopter, stayed for 45 minutes, you know, told him to kick some lady out and left like 2 hours of work and just and I was like, "Man, this is manipu- this is how you manipulate the media and you yeah. know, if if the vast majority of people aren't aren't aware of this, then these people who are pressing the buttons, like at the least, you need to have good guys who know how to play the game as well. You know, because they're exactly. uh, people know how how to play the game, and like you can see it. You know, it's not called being woke; like it's a profession and politic. And I think <laughs> this is like politics in its purest form. You know, um, which is why, like I said, like you have to have good guys on the inside, and and. I like what you guys are doing down there with the Mass Rec Consumer Council, you know, and especially, you know, you, I see you out there stirring it up most recently with talking about these towns that are banning oh, yeah. cannabis business. Like they want to, they want to get the statewide tax, tax benefits, but you know, they don't want to, no. which, which is crazy in mass because like you have in Springfield, I think it was Springfield or Lemonster maybe, you know, like a town that had they were getting a six figure payout from the dispensary plus a percentage annually, you know, on top of the taxes. So that that one issue of if you're a local government, you can cash in on the tax, but you can also basically extort these places. And it'll still be a good deal for everybody. You know, um right. just one of those issues. So I, I don't know, like I, I bring that around to just being kind of an independent activist you know, and lobbyist right. and, and understanding kind of how the game works. And, you know, also from a business perspective, like if you know, you're the one who now knows what these local zoning rules and regulations are, you know, what towns are friendly, right. you know, what towns are not friendly. There's a serious tangible dollar value on that information. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. He says, uh, like I can, I can see you like rubbing your hands together. Um, no. So kind of like what's, you know, down there in mass, Tell me about what that process has been because you guys are going through it in real time. You know, it'll still probably take another two or three years of, of shitty policy to get to things being good um, after it happens. But, you know, kind of what's going on down there in Mass because that's a huge market and that's going to change the game in, in, you know, the entire East Coast when that July 2nd next year. Oh, yeah. Um, essentially, it's they so the ballot said if you want to ban you have to do another municipal vote no matter what what this con- so there was a there was a delay and this is why I formed MRCC after working on the campaign there was a delay in December and then they formed the Joint Committee on Marijuana Policy always funny name and they kind of debated for about six months there was a bunch of bills going by um, to set what the major changes should be. Um, I registered, that's when I officially registered to lobby in January because I knew that committee was going to be hands-on with this. In July, July 28th, there was a compromise bill that came together. Essentially, the House wanted to, it was a 12% tax. The House wanted to make it 28%, and they wanted to change completely how you ban. Essentially, you just do the municipal, um, the city council, the aldermen, the Senate, wanted to keep the tax rate and not change how you ban. The ban still would have to be done through a vote through the town. Um, the compromise bill did two things. It set the tax, well, it did a bunch of things, but the two main things were it set the tax at uh, 
28, which I heard from a lobby from they were planning the whole time. And um, <laughs> the the way you do local control is, is by how the town voted on question four. So if the town voted overwhelmingly, yes, 51% or higher, uh, they have to do a local referendum to ban. And there's been a lot of special elections happening, which has been rough because there's low turnout. No one even knows about these votes, especially people who show up and vote for legalization, as opposed to if towns voted overwhelmingly no, they can just ban it through a vote of a city uh, council or a town of selectmen or aldermen or whatever they have. Um, so it's literally town by town. Sometimes we put, put up moratoriums before this even like this bill even came out. So they just right. put moratoriums that wait till the state figures it out. But some towns have had elections. There was that huge one in Milford a couple weeks ago. It was the first official election since the law changed. And it was a, it was a low turnout. I think maybe 30% came out. Um, and then sometimes we've just been banning through town votes. Um, or, excuse me, uh, like city council votes and alderman votes. And they, for the most part, have been voting against it. Um, so you have a little bit over 100 municipalities that are either banned or put a moratorium in Massachusetts. So Which, that's about one-third of the state has already said we don't want – we're not touching this yet or banning it. And the only way you can change it is if you put um, – I guess I forgot to add this. The, they can only do the city vote, the city council vote, until 2020. The law says at the end of 2019 that will be it, and you have – everywhere will have to do a local referendum. And that's kind of what I was quoted saying in the Globe. We'll just have to do in 2020 – we right. have to have a, a local grassroots vote all over the state and remind people to vote for pot um, because it, that's when you can flip some of these no towns. But yeah, it's, it's a local political war battle. It's crazy. <laughs> well, and um, I mean, even just to like zoom out and give it some context in Massachusetts, you know, you guys had a voter passed referendum, you know, which, right. which, it's, it's kind of interesting because you see how the cycle plays out. Like there are always different factions and eventually they come together. You know, there's a referendum, you vote yes. And then, you know, the state starts fucking with it and screws it up to whatever degree. And I mean, I'm here in, in Vermont. We, via our state constitution, we do not have binding referendums. So, and I know there are 25 other states in that same position, but um, you know, for us, it's like, we're making the sausage as we go. You guys like got over the hurdle, but you still have the same, the same issues that are in every state that's trying to regulate, which is, you know, what's, what's local control, what's the tax rate, you know, not even the local control. How does it work? You know, I mean, right. special elections and, and referendums and, you know, looking back at past votes, um, you know, it seems like it's, there are just lessons that, you know, when you're in kind of the lobbying world and the advocacy world and even the industry, you know, like you see what happens in other states and kind of what's coming next. And I wonder like 2018 hits, what do you see happening between 20, between now and 2018 in, in Massachusetts? Um, and I guess even more to the point, like, do you think that town local moratoriums are a big deal? Because I mean, if you're a business, you want to go into a town that, that, wants you there, you know, or that you at least have a good relationship with. So in a way, isn't this moratorium better in that you can actually get a sense of what towns really don't want you there, you know, so that way if the city council changes in two years, you're not 
left totally fucked? Yeah, um, and I've definitely heard that from a lot of people. Um, like, let towns bands because they'll just show where the demand or where what friendly towns there are, and um, it, it will draw people from those towns to their towns. But in my opinion, coming from just public health and public safety and overall public policy, people are not going to drive an hour. They're going to keep getting it the same way they've been getting it the whole time. So, right. Um, you make it too hard a, and you a, just reinforce the, the underground market that exists, right? Exactly. They're, they're indirectly doing that. I don't think these, these local municipality elected officials realize that they're like, oh, we, we don't want anything to do with this. Well, I'm like, well, we have to remind them, like, this is already happening in your town, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, well, and so I, I saw that on, I, I read that article, one of the many you were quoted in recently, you know, saying that if towns don't want to participate, then they shouldn't participate in the revenue sharing. Um, yep. And I want to know, like, in Oregon, I just posted an article from Gondrepreneur, their latest, uh, one of their articles. Yeah, Oregon's doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wonder, like, <laughs> if that's going to become a real precedent, you know, how realistic it is, or if it's just, you know, one town. once your neighboring town gets an extra $20 million, like, is your rivalry instinct going to kick in and... I mean, again, like it comes down to money. I think everybody I've talked to out west, like once the cash starts rolling in, the conventional businesses and even the conservative and um, you know opposition come around very quickly. Yeah. Yep. Eventually, uh, money money talks, even to a prohibitionist, and 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 that's what another thing we're saying. Like the tax revenue can be used for what the prohibition. Unless it's obviously not too ridiculous, but a lot of it is they're saying the children or we have an opioid epidemic issue. Um, I think the tax revenue can kind of help solve both of those potential problems um, with youth prevention. And also, we can get into this whole thing, but we, we know there's data showing it's helping people get off of opioids. Um, and it can fund tax revenue. Tax revenue can be used for substance abuse programs and drug awareness campaigns. Um, so I just think they're, they're not having, they're not critically thinking. They're just, it's fear. It's all fear. Um, we've been told say no to drugs for a long time and they don't know anything else. So, but, to even challenge something like that is very difficult for a lot of people, especially conservative, older people, um, who tend to come out and vote and control the political world. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, a lot of it is, uh, a lot of it is it's really hard to change people who are ingrained in their in their perception of it like unless they have a personal experience or like a family experience you know a certain degree of them are just sort of it's it's calcified in there you know and we see right. it i see it here you know mostly the insti- it's the institutions um from a lobbying standpoint like we wrote about how the league of cities and towns which represents all the police unions right they have a policy that says, yeah, they're very against it. But, you know, in one yeah. of the towns, the select board just had a vote. They, they put a survey out, and the most widely responded to survey they've ever done, 70% of people said, don't support this policy. The select board decided that they're going to support the policy anyways. You know, and like that's one of 282 towns where, you know, most yeah. of the time you don't even have that survey info. So it's crazy to see. I think a lot of people are learning about democracy and how politics and government really work yeah. through the lands of cannabis. And like, it's funny. I, I make a joke to my mom. I'm like, Mom, I never cared about politics until we got relaxed. Like, 
<laughs> right. Right. Well, and once you see like how it works, like once you've looked behind the curtain and you've seen that, like you can't unsee it. And you're like, yeah. you know, X percent of the people out there like are just your your blinders are on. Um and you can't see the whole perspective. So, I mean, that's why that's why we like to do this because uh that's why we appreciate you taking time to time to talk in the and the work that you do because I think a lot of it, you know, I see you using technology, social media, you know, being smart and getting yourself on earned media, you know, like doing all the things that good advocates do, um, you know, and I think it's just a, a, just a matter of time down there. And I know that us and a lot of other people around the country are waiting to see how, how things play out in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, a little scary, but um, I had a really good meeting today with uh, Chief the chief of civic engagement for the city of Boston. And uh, they're just kind of waiting for the state, but they see this as another business opportunity for the city. And I think between the city of Boston, parts of Cape Cod, parts of Western Mass, hey, hey if no one else is going to take it, they're going to jump on it. And there is money to be made, as we've seen across the country. So, um, and I'm very excited for that. But also, this is a weird thing between activists and the business side, um, you know, activists, there's kind of this feeling in the activist world that you're not supposed to make money or be successful doing this. And then the industry, they don't want to be labeled as activists. So there's a huge disconnect between the community, Man. the businesses, and the legislators. The and that's suits. kind of why I <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, man, it's the, it's the suits, it's the suits, the old, like the old suits, suits versus roots, right? And then, and then you have the politicians who don't know shit about either of them, you know, yeah. or haven't talked to any of them. And that's why you need people who are like cultural interpreters and, uh, you know, code switchers and people who can, who can connect yes. those, those gaps and speak all those languages because it, it really is. I mean, you see the disconnect with like public opinion, with the economic opportunity and all the people who it's in their self-interest to support these things, even politically, you know, it's like you're talking right. to conservatives and like, look, do you want to get a lot of support from younger voters? Like, here's a very easy way to get yourself in the news and get some political points. Right. You know, so. Yep, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do a little bit of that. I'm going to, like, go to potentially some Republican committee meetups and all for the love of cannabis. I, I'm willing to talk to police associations and <laughs> people I would never think about talking to because I, I just know no one else is doing what you and I are doing in terms of connecting different worlds together just for the love of cannabis. It's a, it's a wild ride. So yeah, man, yeah, well, we are, sure. we, we are connections. definitely, man. Well, we do accept sponsorships for the podcast. So, you know, don't worry. Um, I got to pay the rent too. And, um, you know, we're, we're working on some direct advocacy stuff with, with Hedy Vermont. That's exciting. But, you know, like you said, it's, it's, I think going out there, being out there, getting involved and, you know, one thing, another thing to take away from our conversation, just like the opportunities are, are all out there. You know, everybody that you met that you worked with, you know, you've kind of met from just going out there and, and connecting directly. Yeah. Um, and like yeah, the technology absolutely. is helpful too. You know, I mean, like I said, you and I wouldn't have connected had I not, you know, seen these articles and, you know, seeing your yeah. Facebook and all this stuff. Um, in addition to the, like whatever brief meetings we might have had in person uh, up here in the Northeast, but... No, man, I, I appreciate it. You know, what, um, if you want to sort of leave us with a, with a plug here, um, you know, what's a good way for people to support what you're doing, you know, to follow what you're doing, um, 
with the with the rec council, I assume you guys take donations, do events, uh, all these kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. Um, our website is Mass Rec Council Council C O U N C I L dot com, and or it's Facebook is much easier. M A Consumers on Facebook, M A Consumers on Twitter, M A Consumers on Instagram. Um, you can direct message us on any of those things, and either I or my partner or my two other co-founders, Joey and Gabby, we're all kind of on the same boat and this is what we do. Um, and yeah, if you guys would like, we, we do accept donations on our website. Um, definitely donate to, to Eddie. Um, it, you know, events are freaking the best way to do it, man. Do as many events as possible, either vendor at them or help set them up. And we really all can get rich because there's the love of cannabis. It's It's been here the whole time. So for sure, we, we all can spread the, the love and, and knowledge and wealth together. There's no reason why we can't share, so. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, man. Thank thank you. You know, I mean, we continue to grow the grow the podcast and, and Hedy Vermont. We're, we're happy to do this and, you know, try to uh, speak more for the Northeast because there's a lot of big things out here and, you know, we need more uh, we need more connection and collaboration across state lines. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think I, someone commented that the Northeast can kind of have it. One day, because uh, I see the West Coast kind of has interstate between now you got California, Oregon, Washington State and Nevada. I, I see with Maine and Mass. I just see Vermont, Rhode Island, <clears throat> and Connecticut. You know, all of the other New England states, which will eventually put pressure on New York, um, will will want to do it because, like you said, they'll just see all the benefits. So for sure, it's coming. Definitely keep in contact. We we all can work together. You know, it's still federally illegal, so we we got to remember there's still so much work to do. All right, a happy holidays to you. We will be back on our Sunday schedule. Starting off with a New Year's episode uh, coming at you later this week. We'll do a little recap of 2017, look ahead to 2018. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to Kamani Jefferson, the Massachusetts Recreational Consumers Council, the Cannabis Cultural Association. Kamani, thank you for sharing your time with us. Big shout out to Kathy Bloom, our new content person, writer, editorial, event staff. Colin Garvey, who got his own ad read today our new sales and account manager. And I'll go ahead and give a shout out to Morgan True, who is going to be coming on our editorial staff as well, joining us from VT Diggers. So big things are going big things happening with the Heady Vermont crew uh, and with this Vermont Awana podcast itself. So we'll be back again soon. In the meantime, check out HeadyVermont.com. We have got some killer events coming up. And as always, elevate the state.